This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, I'm Kirk Barber. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. Welcome back to our author interview podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Mark Kirchhoff. Dr. Kirchhoff is the Division Director of Dermatology at the University of Ottawa and quickly becoming a national expert on medical marijuana as it applies to dermatology. Dr. Kirchhoff, in his first article in our journal, reviewed the risks and benefits of the use of marijuana. In this podcast, Dr. Kirchhoff outlines for us the information that our patients are receiving from medical marijuana dispensaries. Welcome back, Mark. Uh, Thank you once again for joining me to talk about marijuana. This article, Dermatology-Related Uses of Medical Cannabis Promoted by Dispensaries in Canada, Europe, and the United States uh, by yourself and uh, Megan Lim. It was uh, enlightening, and uh, I'm really keen to, 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 to have you walk me through it and bring this thing to life. I was stunned. 43% 43% of people age 15 and older have used cannabis in their lifetime in our country. You think that's a low number or a high number? I think that's a very high number. Now, what do you think it is, a high number or a low number? I think that's underreported. Uh, I mean, we we are seeing uh, cannabis uses at, at various levels amongst large swaths of the population. Um, so it's a very accepted uh, drug now by, you know, college students, university students. Um, and then if you add on, you know, the, the baby boomer generation who grew up around uh, cannabis and marijuana, uh, I'm, I would say it's probably, you know, three quarters of Canadians would have used marijuana at some point in time in their life. Our prime minister, for instance, has, has and perhaps still is continuing to use marijuana, uh, depending on if you believe him or not. Um, so I think there there is there's widespread use and a lot of it's unre- underreported. I've I've done impromptu surveys amongst my patients uh, where I ask them, I you know, have you used marijuana recently? And you'd be shocked uh, by the number. In fact, that's the next uh, installment, and we want to do in this series, I guess, is looking at the patient perspective and what our dermatology patients are using the marijuana for. So Health Canada has said, and that they're very wise people because. They've listed psoriasis, dermatitis, and pruritus as potential therapeutic uses for cannabis, but they don't endorse its use for therapeutic purposes. Correct. So they're very careful. But the the fact that they even state that these are suggested possible uses indicates almost an implicit uh, approval for medical marijuana, right? I mean, if Health Canada lists this on their website, uh, that must mean that there's some sort of data, right? If if you and I read this, or if the the lay person reads this, they're gonna be like, oh well, obviously my psoriasis will benefit from uh, the use of cannabis. Uh, if you compare and contrast the sort of hoops that we put big pharma through in order to get a drug approved, this is the the contrast is striking. Now, what dermatological conditions is Health Canada supporting, or? suggesting that might benefit from the use of marijuana. So in, in the HPB, or Health Health Protection Board of Canada, suggests pain, psoriasis, dermatitis, pruritus, 
And then insomnia and depressed mood associated with chronic disease may all be areas where cannabis may have some benefit. Um, and I've selected these as the ones that are dermatologically related. There are a list of others on the website, um, but these are the ones that I thought were important uh, and the ones that are related to the, our patient population. If you look, I've also included uh, the U.S. listing there, um, and you know they list similar things, so pain, uh, psoriasis, uh, dermatitis, as you can see, is not on the U.S. list, so there's some differences there. And then there's a lot of these uh, very specific disorders that probably were approved due to lobbying on the part of individuals who may have had that disease. So Lyme disease, neurofibromatosis, nail patella syndrome, lupus. So th these are in conditions that have very little evidence, if any, uh, and yet they've been approved in various states as indications for the use of medical marijuana. In your article, you go through a little bit of the science that suggests how these um, conditions may be affected by cannabis. Tell me the story with respect to psoriasis. I mean, we, we have, we're booming in treatments for psoriasis these days, um, all unbelievably effective. We're not all, but we can really do a very, very nice job for people with psoriasis these days. Um, is there any decent evidence that psoriasis may be benefited from the use of medical marijuana? So there are no uh, placebo-controlled RCT studies on either systemic or topical cannabis for psoriasis. So the, the, the use of medical marijuana in psoriasis is based on uh, uh, in vitro uh, data suggesting that keratinocyte proliferation can be affected by cannabinoids, uh, and that cannabinoids have an anti-inflammatory property so that they can uh, alter the proliferation activation of immune cells. Uh, there is, again, there, there's no data to suggest that it, it potentially works in psoriasis, but those two pieces of information have been used to suggest, well, you know, psoriasis is a disorder of keratinocyte proliferation and a disorder of the immune system. So therefore, uh, it should work. So it's these logical loops, uh, logical jumps that, that people go through to, to make the connection and to suggest that these are approved uses. But really, there's there's no data. And that's, that's the danger, right? Uh, and as we've talked about in the previous article, the use of medical marijuana is not without its risks. Uh, and so if people just assume that there's all these benefits without a risk, that can be a problem. Do you think that the, all of this... Um flurry to get a new therapy um, is actually putting people at risk? I mean, would you argue that um, this is, we've gone way overboard in allowing um, the use of medical marijuana or, or not standing up and saying enough about its potential risks? Yes. And, uh, and then allowing the public to believe that it is safe? Uh, yes. Um, and I'm actually surprised uh, that there isn't more regulation around this. I think there should be some sort of vetting process. I mean, if, you, if you're trying to sell a vitamin in Canada and you say this will cure, you know, cancer uh, and there's no data to support that, uh, that, that company can be and will be approached by Health Canada and say, you cannot make that claim. There may be legal ramifications from making that claim. 
and yet uh, we have uh, now you can go online um, and there's this I just did an interview on this substance called Rick Simpson's oil um, and this is basically high THC uh, extract from the marijuana plant um, that claims to be an anti-cancer medication uh, and if you go online you will see patients who have used this for melanoma um, which as you can imagine, has potentially deadly complications. And so that's just one example uh, of the false advertising that can lead to very bad patient outcomes. And, and I think we do need to educate the public uh, when those risks are present and, and when serious harm can come to our patients. So it appears to me from what comes across my desk that the industry is trying to train physicians on how to prescribe the drug and how to get more drug out onto the street. But a lot of patient education isn't really occurring. Is there a is there websites or are there places where people can go to get to make an informed decision? Anything you're aware of? So un unfortunately it's unfortunately not, again, because you're looking for an organization uh, that would provide a scientific approach to the analysis of the data. Most of the organizations or online sources or social media sources are geared towards the promotion of cannabis and cannabis medically related uses. Uh, so they are biased. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's fine if you're enthusiastic about, you know, drinking water, uh, where the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to pee more. But if you're promoting something that may potentially have serious harm and have serious consequences to patients, then I think you need to do a better job. You need to be uh, m more rigorous in your approach in your approach of how to promote those products. So I think that's the problem. And, and the internet is this wild west now of of individuals that can make all sorts of outlandish claims without consequence. And I think that's that's a problem. And that was the essence of your work. Yes, I mean, it was to, to to look at what the internet said about marijuana. Correct. What patients, what our patients are are taking from these supposed reputable, right? So dispensaries are considered, you know, reputable sources that are providing medical marijuana. So these are like pharmacies, right? You, if you go to a pharmacist, you'd say, uh, you know, tell me about methotrexate. What are the side effects? And you get this handout, and here's all the data to support which side effects are common, which ones are serious. But if you go to a dispensary, there's none of that. They're, it's so that they're almost n not doing a good job at what they're supposed to do. Uh, and we wanted to make people aware of that because patients will come to you. And I've had patients come to me and they'll say, oh, th this this I'm using for my squimacillate carcinoma. And I was like, well, what's, what's the data for that? And then they said, well, Rick Simpson used this oil and his skin cancer went away. And I was like, oh, well, do you know what kind of skin cancer that was? No, it's just skin cancer. And I was like, okay, well, we don't have enough data. And, and how many times was repeated? Do you have any more information other than this one person who had this one success? And so that's the problem, right? We have anecdotal evidence that's being used to promote products in, in the same league as, uh, you know, randomized controlled, placebo-controlled trials. Uh, so patients really should be educated on the level of data that supports the claims that are being made. So in your review, you break it down to Canada, United States, Europe. Yeah. 
how does Canada fare in this discussion? So, uh, depending on your point of view, either poorly or well, if you're if you're looking for um, uh, the the most broad descriptions, potential uses, and, and a rich source of you know future studies, then we're doing well because we have all these dispensaries that have promoted a wide variety of different uses of medical marijuana, both topically and systemically, uh, much greater than in the United States and, and even greater than Europe. So Europe is the most conservative, um, and then Canada is by far the most liberal. Uh, we, we seem to have no limitations on what can be promoted uh, online, um, and, and so I think that's a problem. Um, and, and perhaps our government has been lax in uh, making good strides on regulation and policing this because legalization was coming, right? So this the research we did on this was before legalization occurred. Uh, so that's a good thing to point out, that this is before legalization occurred. We have no idea. It'd be interesting to repeat this now that legalization has occurred. Is it even worse? You know, do we, do we, even, do we see even more uses being promoted by these companies? Uh, so it might be interesting to do that contrast, but uh, this was before legalization occurred and these uses were being promoted online without much uh, data to support, um, and, and which is great contrast to the United States and Europe. So uh, tell me a bit about Europe. I mean, it's not legal in Europe, I'm assuming. No, in, 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 in Europe, it is uh, approved for medicinal uses uh, yes. in a variety of different countries. Um uh, but the interest is skyrocketing. We, you know, if you, if I, t when I went to the European Academy of Dermatology talking to my colleagues, um, they're not really prepared for what's coming. And if you go online, there is a massive groundswell. I have one of my colleagues who went to med school with me. She is currently in England and she's doing a speaking tour on medical marijuana and the use of medical marijuana in England. Uh, so, this is coming and it's going to be coming uh, in full force. We're basically the, the, the first to market uh, and a sort of a canary in, in you know, proverbial coal mine of medical marijuana. And, and I think Europe is, is not prepared for what's coming. So Germany recently, I think it was about a, two years ago, uh, started approving medical marijuana and you can now apply for exemptions and there's doctors who will prescribe it for you. Uh, France has a fairly liberal medicinal marijuana uh, law. Um, uh, England, uh, same thing. Um, so we're going to see uh, increased use uh, in those countries. Uh, and then perhaps eventually at some point in time, uh, legalization might become a reality there because uh, usually uh, uh, what we see is the standard protocol is that medical marijuana is lobbied for by patients. Um, then that gets approved. Uh, the indications become wider and wider. Uh, and then eventually uh, countries say, well, let's just approve this uh, recreationally. Um, because of the potential revenue source and, you know, uh, policing uh, marijuana medic medicinal use can be expensive. So uh, re recreational uses uh, then get approved. Um, and we've seen that happen in Canada. We've also seen that in several states in the United States. Do you think legalization has reduced the use of medicinal marijuana? Uh, by that, I, yeah, so, you know, I mean, so does it, does, fewer does a prescription... Uh, so I will say marginally, because I think there are a group of people who are using a prescription, uh, uh, derived marijuana that is being covered, um, by various, uh, payers. 
So an example is uh, the Canadian Army, right? So the Canadian Army will cover medical marijuana uh, in certain circumstances uh, under doctor supervision and doctor prescription. So I, I, I think those prescriptions won't change because the patient doesn't have to pay for the medication, right? Um, and individuals who were self-medicating, um, uh, definitely, you know, they're not, they're not caring about the, the medicinal indications as much anymore. Now they can, you know, go to their local uh, cannabis uh, dispensary and they have a much wider selection than they may have had previously. So in one of my editorials, I mused about how physicians now are going to be, bear the brunt of this wave in that people that are using it recreationally feel that it improved their medical condition. Now we'll come to the physician because marijuana is still expensive mm-hmm. and request a prescription in order to be covered. So I've never written a prescription. How would I do it? Well, that really depends. Um, I, because you, as you just alluded to, most patients will come to you and say, I've used this and uh, it works for whatever it is, right? And I have written prescriptions for medical marijuana, um, uh, particularly in, in, a, in a few different scenarios. So one is I've used it in HS patients um, and there it seems to help with pain um, and there is fairly good data to suggest that marijuana can uh, be used uh, in pain control. So I, I have no problems writing prescriptions if you know an HS patient comes to me and says, uh, I've been using this for some time and, and I'd like to try to get this covered by my insurance. Uh, can you write me a prescription? And so I've done that. And so I will usually inquire as to the uh, method and the amount that they use. Um, and there's a few different ways that marijuana is consumed. Um, uh, some people make their own oils uh, at in home. So they'll actually distill and boil down the marijuana. In that case, they'll need higher volumes. Um, and then there's others who use uh, vaporization or inhalation. Uh, and there's other people who consume it uh, uh, orally, uh, raw. So they'll basically eat the marijuana. Um and so each of those modalities has a different amount. So if you're inhaling marijuana, usually uh, people will be consuming anywhere from about 0.2 to 1 gram uh, per day. Um, if you're making your you know, oil from that, uh, I've seen people, you know, you have to usually make it in batches, but anywhere from 0.5 to uh, 2 grams of marijuana a day is prescribed. Um and and uh, the eaten marijuana is about uh, 0.5 to 1 gram a day. So that gives you some sort of range of the amounts that are consumed on average on a daily basis by individuals that are using it. Um, but a lot of my amounts are based on, on them. Um, as you know, as with any drug, people become uh, immune, I will say, or there's a tachyphylaxis that occurs over time. And sometimes they have to increase their amount. So it's not as, you know, the, you know, same thing with methotrexate or cyclosporin or some of the drugs that we prescribe. Updosing and adjustments are required. And I usually ask patients where they are on the spectrum and how much they need to consume to, to get to where they are. Now, obviously, if a patient comes to me and says, you know, like, you know, 28 grams a day, 
I'd be inquiring about their actual job and if they're not doing something else on the side. So there, there's, you know, important caveats that have to be made and how much they're doing, but these are just some ballpark figures that I've used in my prescriptions. So give me the mechanics. I'm, what do I write? So usually um, I will ask patients to select a dispensary uh, and they usually will go to a dispensary and you can go online or you can go in person and they will come to you with a prescription form, much like we have for biologic agents. Uh, there's a patient support program. Um, and, and then basically you fill out the prescription in the little boxes that they provide. Uh, you can also write a, a free form prescription and give it to the patient and they can take it to the dispensary. So either one works um, and other one is available. So for instance, uh, if you wanted to prescribe medical marijuana, you could say uh, cannabis, uh, 0.5 to one gram uh, daily. Um, please supply 30 day supply. Uh, use PRN uh, as an example of a prescription that would be acceptable and usable. And usually they want to see an indication on the prescriptions, um, uh, just so they because they have to do their due diligence um, and so they can track it, I guess, and put it into their system. But you usually have to say, you know, for hydronized supertiva, for pain, for sleep. Um, you know, whatever it may be that your indication is, um, uh, you usually have to put that down. And, and their pre-filled forms also require that, that you have to put down what the use is. Um, the other place, so I mentioned HS is one particular place where I've prescribed. The other place I've seen a lot of it used is in uh, atopic dermatitis. So in the control of uh, paritis and in uh, the inducement of sleep, uh, because we know those patients are very itchy, sometimes have lots of problems sleeping. Uh, so patients uh, tend to use it for both of those things, the itch and the sleep. Uh, and there may be some preliminary data to suggest that it, it reduces the inflammatory component. But again, I think this needs further study. So um, you're always prescribing dry? Yes, it's usually, yeah. The, the oil people either make at home or... Yeah, sometimes I will prescribe the oil, uh, and, and that, but that's a, that's a rare circumstance. Um, uh, people seem to like the ability you know, at least the people that I prescribed it for, uh, to manipulate it as, as they see fit and to consume it in the form they see fit. Uh, and some people will change their method of consumption depending on what's going on, where they are. Um, obviously, you know, it's, uh, it, if you have the ability to boil it down into your own oil, some people do that and enjoy that process. But um, you can also prescribe the oil. Um, and usually the oil comes in uh, small vials um, 15 uh, milliliters to 30 milliliters approximately. And then usually the indication will be one or two drops. Um, the problem is, is oils aren't standardized. So the amount of active ingredient is highly variable. Um, and so the, the CBD uh, and the THC content can change and vary. Um, and often the dispensaries would like to have I will say uh, the latitude to decide with the patient what formulation, what type, what strain of cannabis works best for them. That was my next question yeah. to ask how you separated that, that, out that component because you're just really saying, here, take this dry material, use a gram a day yeah. for 30 days, and you're not specifying thc content no specifically no no and 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 i i tend to favor low thc high cbd content right because uh the thc is the psychoactive component 
Um, and we know that, you know, that without the CBD, THC alone can lead to psychosis. Um, and so there are psychological side effects to THC containing products uh, greater than the CBD containing products. And we know that a lot of the benefits that are potentially hypothetically associated with marijuana are the CBD content, right? It's the, it's, that's usually the anti-inflammatory component. It's the antipyritic component. That's the pain control component. Um, so I tend to encourage patients to seek out high CBD, uh, anywhere from 15 to 20% uh, in the oil. Um, the dry product is not as easy to standardize. And, you know, is, is it the bud? Is it the, the, the actual leaf product? Is it, you know, so what you're getting has different contents, different amounts. So it's not as easy to standardize as the oils. The oils are tested and give you the exact amount on there. Um, but often you'll talk to patients and they say, I need to experiment and try a few different strains, a few different varieties to know what's going to work for me. And uh, that's obviously okay. encouraged by the dispensary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and do you put uh, down on your prescription low THC, high CBD content preferred or just let people figure it out? I, I, I tend not to because the dispensaries don't like that. Uh, they like to have uh, free reign. Um, they usually have, I will call medical cannabis consultants. Sometimes they're physicians, sometimes they're not, uh, who will um, guide patients in selecting quote unquote appropriate strains for their condition. So that's why they want you to write down the condition because in, in their estimation, they have expertise uh, to be able to guide patients to the correct strain, the correct oil for them. So this is really going to bring you to article number three in your trilogy. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. Patients, why, how they select, how, who helps them select, and what effect did they get when they did select and, 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 and tried out these various concentrations or products for the conditions that they have. Correct. And then eventually, I th and we're still working on this right now, we'd like to do some, some randomized control trials uh, because I think there's a lack of data. And we need, we need impartial, unbiased, uh, rigorous scientific investigation. Uh, and I think we as dermatologists are positioned, you know, we have experience doing clinical trials, uh, especially in Canada, right? We're, we're very strong uh, internationally and known for doing well-documented clinical trials. And so I think we are positioned very well in Canada now to access and to do these trials and to analyze whether or not this is truly effective uh, in these patients or not. I can't wait. Uh, I, and I, I can't wait to publish the trilogy. And you always give us really nice practical tips. And now I know how to write a prescription. I can hardly wait for the first uh, time to do it now. Well, ask your patients because they, 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 you'll be surprised how many of them actually are using it. Just do an experiment one day. I mean, uh, Calgary yeah. may be different than you know Ottawa or Kingston, the places I've worked, or, or Vancouver. Um, but do an experiment one day and just, just make a point of asking every patient that walks through your clinic, have you used medical marijuana or have you used marijuana for any kind of intent purpose other than getting high uh, in the past uh, six months to a year? And, and you'll get some interesting results. Well, I would love a standardized form. If you do one in your clinic, yeah, that'd be great to send across the country. You could have thousands of people work on this standardized form in, in, in no time is yeah. what I'm hearing. Okay, right? yeah. If, yeah. That'd be wonderful information. Great. Right. Well, thank you again for taking the time to uh, enlighten us and uh, best wishes. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. 
You've been listening to my interview with Dr. Mark Kirchhoff regarding his manuscript, The Dermatology-Related Uses of Medical Cannabis as Promoted by Dispensaries. I found it very informative, but I also found it quite frightening. I know my clinical practice, I'll be asking more questions, and I hope you will too. Until the next time, please subscribe and be good to each other. Thank you.